Welcome back to another episode of The Peace Production, a podcast by the Organization for World Peace, where we look at the biggest challenges currently facing human security. I'm your host, Matt Adamson. On this week's episode, we examine Iran, where protests have turned deadly in response to a planned increase in the country's fuel tax. Joining me to discuss this is social media correspondent, Alex McIntyre. Hello, Alex. Hi there, Matt. Alex, why don't you tell us how the week of protests have unfolded? Uh, so essentially, these uh, protests have unfolded after, I believe, on the, the 15th of November, the Iranian government introduced uh, what was essentially a cutting back of fuel subsidies in Iran and uh, also a food rationing program, which is similar to one that was actually introduced during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and uh, this basically fomented a, a huge amount of uh, unrest in Iran, uh, culminating in protests all around the country. Uh, so there was protests in, I think, in at least 21 cities, um, and that's probably a conservative number, but very widespread. And uh, Amnesty International reported that in response to these protests, uh, there was obviously a huge government crackdown uh, by the Iran Revolutionary Guard, in which at least 100 protests have been killed, but I actually believe that number has been revised to something uh, upwards of 142, as I checked it today. Um, so obviously that's a huge cost of life uh, just from the outset. And so I suppose looking more into what's actually, what's actually caused which has actually given rise to these uh, protests, uh, we've got to look uh, to the, uh, the US sanctions that were essentially reimposed uh, following Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal that was struck by the Obama government. That essentially uh, just put extreme stress on the Iranian economy. And uh, the government has responded uh, really, you know, in the way it has this week uh, by cutting these fuel fuel subsidies, which obviously puts a lot of pressure on particularly the poorest people in Iran who are currently probably struggling the most um, as a result of this economic collapse. Uh, And so it was it was really the poorest people who were overrepresented. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's totally understandable, especially, especially when you consider the fact that fuel in Iran is, is essentially sort of considered a birthright, given the country's huge access to, to oil. A price hike of 200% quite naturally uh, cause a lot of upset. And I think we've seen, we've seen the, the, you know, the, the effects of that this week. Uh, yeah, so just to contextualise these protests and the broader picture of, of Middle East and unrest for our listeners. So um, this appears to be the worst violence since um, the Iran put down the Green Revolution in 2009. And what we are seeing is really a wider spectrum of society joining the revolt this time, because what we have here is something that, as you said, Alex, is, is something that um, Iranians really consider to be a, a birthright, which is access to cheap fuel. And in the broader context, you see this battle over Iran's budget, which is incorporating these increasing austerity measures, which, as you say, are a response to 
ongoing sanctions from the US in relation to the nuclear program. And what we what that has led to as as people are coming into more and more economic hardship and seeing the state's legitimacy be questioned. Um, you're having protesters burning and defacing state symbols. That was very um, evident this week. And the um, government responded in earnest. We saw the Revolutionary Guards arrest about 100 leaders of the protest that erupted um, over the last week. And to help stifle the protest, we did see an internet shutdown, um, which the Iranian information minister um, has been sanctioned by the US government over that, which was quite interesting to see. But Alex, what, what was the government trying to achieve by introducing these measures? They did have a state of aim, didn't they? So, I mean, the, the point of these measures uh, is obviously to, uh, to raise, uh, as far as I know, to, to raise uh, extra money, essentially, to, to bolster the Iranian budget in order to actually dispense these um, social programs. Uh, aimed at sort of bolstering the the country's poor, who are obviously suffering the most at the moment under under the current economic situation. So yeah, I suppose that 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 aim is actually in a way sort of reflective of some of the problems, the structural problems that have intensified Iran's deteriorating economic situation, um, and that's basically. Uh, they are controlling the the reimposition of sanctions by the U.S. The reigning government has still sort of had massive expenditures uh, on these uh, social welfare programs, which is again uh, just like fuel is sort of regarded. Uh, it's been regarded as the sort of modus operandi of the of the Iranian government, uh, and they've been able to do that with their you know ex- excessive amount of fuel on their exports, which has been uh, put under severe pressure uh, and almost reduced to, to, to very little uh, light of the sanctions. Um, and so, you know, they, they've, they've tried to, uh, they've basically continued those policies despite not having the money to do so. And that's causing further inflation. Uh, and it's also causing uh, increasing joblessness and all these other sort of trickle-down uh, economic effects that, that are just just continuing to plunder the Iranian economy. So there's not really, doesn't seem to be a, a, an easy solution to this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, really is trickling down, as you say, to everyday Iranians who are just seeing their savings evaporate amidst that inflation. What's some of the reactions that you've seen to what's um, happened so far? I understand that the internet was um, restored over the weekend following intervention from the Revolutionary Guard, but how have the, has the international community responded to this event? Yeah, so I mean, as you'd expect, um, Donald Trump has you know, used this as an opportunity to uh, just point to what he's been saying quite a while, and I suppose what you know, what characterizes his position on Iran, uh, which is that, you know, Iran is an unstable, untenable regime, which is essentially tyrannical. And that's that's obviously evidenced by the severe crackdown on the protesters and then the shutdown on uh, the internet uh, for five days subsequent. So, yeah, he's, he's, you know, in his sort of typical opportunistic way, has seized upon that. You know that's Trump. Obviously, the UN and and uh, NGOs have responded with universal condemnation of Iran's actions. 
Turning to Iran itself and the President Rouhani, um, he's also responded, I think, in, in, in quite a typical, quite typical fashion, which is to essentially um, do the opposite of, of what Trump did, is, which is to, to blame the Americans and the West. Um, I think specifically said it was based on a plot that the Zionists and Americans had hatched, uh, which is the sort of typical, uh, typical language uh, used in, in these sort of scenarios. And what he's obviously trying to do by, by speaking in that way is to divert the blame for the crisis to, to an outsider, to, you know, which is obviously usually takes the form of the US or the West. And that obviously is uh, intended to help him uh, shore up, obviously divert blame for himself and in doing so, you know, shore up his domestic support uh, for the regime, which is obviously sort of collapsing in front of him. So that, that makes sense uh, uh, from his perspective there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we've seen on Monday the United States was doubling down on its position on Iranian sanctions related to the Fordo nuclear plant. Um, so recently Tehran has resumed Iranian enrichment at the underground site, which is obviously quite, quite worrying. Um, but just in regards, Alex, to the use of suppressing the internet as a means of quelling the protest, do you, what do you make of that as a means of quelling protest? Obviously, it, it um, restricts freedom of speech and, and communication, but do you think it's a legitimate tool of, of statecraft? No, I mean, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's a, a pretty heinous uh, thing to do in, in this in, in modern times, you know, uh, internet is, is you know, the, the, the lifeblood of, of people at the moment. And in Iran, that freedom is just as important as, as anywhere else. Um, and I think quite rightly, the UN and uh, other international organizations responded by calling it out as, as a flagrant violation of, of the demonstrator's right to freedom of expression. Yeah, so I, I think, no, that's definitely not a legitimate use, use of statecraft. Reacting in that way will just essentially have the opposite effect of what uh, Rouhani uh, wants. Uh, you know, he wants to, he wants to try and quell discontent and the disenchantment uh, among ordinary Iranians. But uh, he, I think that will only inflame tensions because as, you know, as we know, uh, and as anyone can understand, the Iranians have just as much an interest um, in, in these freedoms and a right to these freedoms as, as anyone else. I don't think they'll put up with it. And I think um, we'll see the repercussions of that. Yeah. And just from a pragmatic perspective, you know, some businesses will obviously lose profit from um, their decision to cut off the internet. So obviously Mm. there'll be increased um, bad blood toward the government if they're costing their businesses money. So it's only likely to increase the sort of level of unrest that we see in any run. Um, Alex, what do you think is likely to happen next? I mean, is there any sort of end to the U.S. sanctions perhaps in sight, given the increasingly dire position of Iran's economy? Trump's position with Iran has been one, you know, one of its strongest foreign policy positions, one of his most consistent foreign policy positions, I think. Uh, you know, whereas he might have been a little bit, a little bit more inconstant, a little bit more capricious, you know, in regards to you know the situation in Syria, for example, um, with Iran, he's he's quite consistently held that, uh, and again, it was an election promise that he would that he would back out of the deal 
if the you know if the Iranians and everyone else who was involved in that deal, i.e. the you know the 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 P five plus one, uh, unless they would renegotiate uh, on better terms, terms more favorable to the U.S., i.e. Uh, they would renegotiate such that, for example, Iran's ban on nuclear proliferation wouldn't you know wouldn't have a time limit, for example. Uh, so unless unless Iran is willing to compromise on its nuclear program, then I very much doubt uh, the US uh, is going to change its tack. Uh, obviously, you know, if, if say, a Democratic uh, president or someone who isn't Trump is re-elected in 2020, then it could be, we could see a, for a, a shift in policy. But uh, as long as Trump remains at the helm, I think uh, things will probably continue as they are um, and you know, Iran will be pushed further and further to the brink. And as again, that's just reiterated by the fact that Iran have, in you know, in response to these sanctions, m- simply doubled down and essentially, you know, just just flagrant, flagrantly disregarded, uh, you know, any sort of pretense of of nuclear non-proliferation. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think things are just heading further and further south. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. I mean, looking at the Iranian economy that most analysts are expecting it to contract by about 9% this year and continued yeah. sanctions um, that we're going to see it'll obviously impact that even further. I mean, there's ongoing the tensions we see between the US and Iran are, are only getting worse. There's the argument that this sort of economic warfare on behalf of the US is really just backing Iran into a corner. And how that will play out given Iran's relationships with its near neighbours remains to be seen. I mean, we're starting to see protests now in Iraq. We could potentially see a wider unrest in that neighbouring that neighboring region. But in terms of how, how Iran could possibly fix itself internally, fix its own economy and, and help raise the standard of living for its people, do you think it's possible for Iran to be able to focus its efforts internally more and perhaps play less of a role in the Middle East and um, political sphere? Well, economically, that would, that would involve serious, well, serious sort of uh, structural adjustments, uh, which thus far the Iranian government has not shown any willingness to implement. Um, obviously, for fear that, that say, if they... Um, you know, sort of scale back uh, or uh, adjust some of their so uh, quite quite generous social policies for fear that that will cause another public backlash, which it's very likely it will. So uh, they're they're sort of trapped in a corner uh, on the economic side of things, such that that you know there doesn't seem to be a very obvious way out. Uh, and again, in terms of uh, their foreign policy. The, the, you, they can see unraveling uh, everything, sort of unraveling around them at the moment. As you said, there's there's uh, Iraq uh, where there's been uh, mass protests, also in Lebanon as well. So these are sort of Iran's main footholds in the Middle East at the moment, and and they're looking increasingly tenuous. Uh, so their position, as you know, not just internally in terms of their the strength of their regime and their strength of their economy. It's not just the internal. Uh, situation which is deteriorating. It's also their external uh, strength uh, vis-a-vis 
you know, vis-a-vis the rest of the Middle East and vis-a-vis the US, uh, they seem to be uh, sort of rapidly uh, deteriorating uh, as, a, as a global power in that respect. At the moment, uh, you know, unless the regime is willing to make some serious concessions and take some, take some risks uh, to itself, then I don't think there will be much progress. And again, that's not something uh, the the Supreme Leader or the President has has shown a sort of willingness to do. They are quite um, hubristic. They are quite arrogant. Um, It it seems they're just going to try and respond in the only way they know how, which is with with fear and intimidation. Uh, But that can only last so long. And, you know, not only will that, potentially have disastrous consequences for Iran and the Iranian people, um, driving their state, you know, plunging their state further and further in, into economic woe, uh, but also potentially, you know, lead to an escalation of uh, a, a global conflict uh, if they are pushing themselves to, to increase their uh, capacity for nuclear weapons. Um, obviously, the, the, U- the US is not going to respond kindly to that. Um, and you know a military escalation is not unforeseeable yeah you're right it's it's clear that the ongoing um i guess brinksmanship that we see in the middle east can't continue without that that major conflict happening at least at some point that there needs to be investment in not just iran but in the region um i think that regional stability here can't really be divorced from the stability of individual states if you have one unstable state that's likely to affect the stability of the region, but when you have a group that's likely to, I guess, even more drive down the stability of the region. But so in terms of an investment approach to how, I guess you could say, drive up the capacity of the Middle East, I think that's perhaps an approach which has merit because I think those wanting to roll back Iranian influence in the region could really do well if they, focused on less of the economic warfare aspect of this and really looked at the investing in the human and economic development of these vulnerable states and communities and sort of driving and driving development of the institutions of the state through that way. I mean, that sort of thing would take time. And and I guess we see in Iran that there's been, I guess, the taxpayers and they cut at the moment, they really wonder why these physical reforms that we see benefit state funds and do nothing to really lift them out of poverty, but we, they continue to see the ruling class make away like bandits. And I guess yeah. if you drive that with a bit more of a human and economic development perspective from outside and less through this corrupt system, you're more likely to see positive change. But um, but that's just my perspective on that one. Alex, do you think the current regime can deliver for Iran or is something more structural required to raise the standard of living in the Middle East and, and more general? You know, the, the, on the one hand, um, I think most Iranians, at least most probably middle-class Iranians, um, which is quite a large swath of, of, of society, um, are looking for a sort of gradual... A sort of gra- are open to a gradual reform of the system, but on the other hand, uh, those aren't the Iranians who are suffering most at the moment under these uh, structural problems. Those are the poorest Iranians, and they—they, they, as we can see from these protests, they don't 
they won't settle for gradual reform. They want what you know something which sort of uh, is you know reminiscent or 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 resembling uh, you know an overturn of of the regime or a revolution. Yeah, to borrow a um, slogan from the Elizabeth Warren campaign, they want big structural change. Yeah, they do, um, and that is I think that's reflective of growing attitude in the Middle East. I think something we've seen. Uh, in recent years, particularly through the Arab Spring, and again, um, you know, just just in the last few weeks, with with uh, the protests in Iran, Iraq, and in Lebanon, uh, which is a, a growing discontent, particularly among the youth, um, of uh, these despotic regimes um, and their inability to deliver, uh, both in terms of you know economic welfare and in terms of uh, the freedom with which they furnish their their citizens. Um, I think that uh, if anything, these protests show the growing fragility of of the Middle East generally and of of a dictatorship uh, and the approach to governance that has been uh, that you know that's been endemic in that region. Uh, it's little to see. It's difficult to see what else you know what how this is going to resolve itself except through dramatic reform and dramatic change. Um, yeah, so I, again, the prospects are not particularly promising at the moment. Um, and I, there's another point I'd like to make as well, which is uh, something which is, which is, which is uh, a new sort of aspect of, of protest at the moment, which is obviously the fact that, and we again, we saw this through the Arab Spring, um, that, as soon as one protest pops up and, and, and there's, there's growing content, discontent um, and, and consternation in one area in the Middle East, say, you know, in Lebanon, uh, then it quickly spreads. Uh, and that's, that's facilitated, obviously, through um, the growing access to the internet and communications technology, which is essentially just uh, proliferating you know, eradicating borders and allowing these protests to grow in in fervor, uh, and that's you know really posing a challenge for uh, the the regimes at the moment in the Middle East. How they you know if they respond to that in the way that they have done in the past, which is through repression and through fear, uh, I'm not sure that that's going to cut it um, unless they you know end up telling their entire population, in which case they won't have much left to, you know, um, you know, much left for them. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't really see how um, this is going to resolve itself easily, uh, but I suppose time will tell. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And the lesson I see here is that touching on what you said about the unrest really spreading quite quickly to neighbouring countries is that, Regional stability really can't be divorced from the stability of individual states here. While it's not possible for their states to, I guess, refocus their attentions totally internally at the moment, if we can see a bit more cooperation and, and I guess, friendly neighbor, neighborliness in those Middle Eastern states, then we might be able to see a bit more of that, um, those attentions turn, turn inwards and addressing the real problems of those citizens and not really becoming proxies for the US and, and, and Russia and their, and their conflict in the Middle East. But um, I guess I just want to end with a quote from um, former President Obama around this at the time, who 
commented that for the debate stability in the Middle East that our friends as well as the Iranians need to find an effective way to share the neighbourhood. And for me, that's the big takeaway here is that if there can be an effective way to share the neighbourhood and that there can be good cooperation facilitated in the Middle East, then we might actually see these internal problems become less frequent, less severe, and eventually people's quality of life will go upwards. Um, so thank you for joining me today, Alex. It's been really good to have you back on the show. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Matt. And a big thank you to our correspondents for providing valuable research and commentary on this tricky subject. For our Apple Podcast listeners, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. If you have any comments, good or bad, you can send us an email. Admin at the I'm Matt Adamson. And until next time, goodbye.